So if you'd like to open up to Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. You look good tonight, you do. All of you. And compared to all other nights. <laughs> you know, there's a favorite verse of mine that back when we studied through the Psalms caught my attention and I've recalled it many times, especially uh, worshiping here together. And it's Psalm 33, verse 1, which says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. So if you're ever having a bad hair day, or you're feeling frumpy, or you just don't feel like you're presenting well, praise the Lord. Because praise is becoming to the upright. It will make you look better. This reality struck me actually several years ago. We were at a conference lesson, and myself, and, and I believe Jeff was there, and, and, a, and a couple of others, and a conference at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, Alistair Bakes Church. It was a pastor's conference. And we got in there for the first session, and we we're getting settled there in the pew and getting comfortable. And, and up on stage, I noticed the worship team was comparing notes and talking to each other and getting ready to begin the worship. And I noticed there was a a girl up there that was going to be leading or doing the the singing, a man behind the piano, and just from their interaction it looked like perhaps husband and wife, and they had a drummer, violinist, and some other instruments up there as well. And and I noticed her, and I thought, well, you know, nice girl, but I I wasn't like, wow, she's just stunning. I just thought she was a cute girl. I just noticed there was a nice girl on the stage, and she was going to lead worship. And then I got back to talking to Les, and, and then the worship began, and she started to sing. And about two songs into the worship, I went, wow, she is stunning. She is actually beautiful. Why didn't I notice this before? And I I mean it in all purity. I just thought, this sister is beautiful. Her name is Kristen Getty. Her husband is Keith Getty. They're the ones that authored songs like In Christ Alone and, and other modern hymns. She has an amazing voice, but that's when I realized the reality, praise is becoming to the upright. It was when she began to worship that suddenly I recognized a beauty that I I hadn't seen in her before. And it's not to say that she wasn't beautiful before or wasn't pretty. I just wasn't noticing until she began to worship. And then in between songs, she opened the Bible and began to read Scripture. She has an Irish accent. I was done. (laughs) But praise is becoming to the upright. It wears well. It looks good on you. Isaiah 61 verse 10 also says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So I realize, you know what, it's not just praise that's becoming for the upright. It's also salvation. Salvation clothes me and makes me better, makes me more becoming, more attractive, if you will. When you're saved, you're in a different place. And so worship is attractive, and salvation is attractive in us and and on us. For those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, worship is charming. Salvation is fetching, And they're worn like fine apparel. But you know what else is becoming? Sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine, to say it, sounds like a a stiff old shirt in the closet. You want it there. You want to be sure you have it. You're not going to give it away. It's sound doctrine after all. But it's not something you're going to wear out to a fancy dinner party. It's not something you're going to put on to, you know, to really look attractive. And yet, Titus chapter 2 verse 1 says, As for you, Paul speaking to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The word fitting literally is becoming. Speak things that are becoming for sound doctrine. The word is prepo. Just think of preppy. You know, and you'll get it. When I was in high school, uh, preppiness just was a, a thing, a brand new thing. You could look preppy, look kind of sharp, dressed, you know. Prepo literally means conspicuously attractive. Speak the things which are conspicuously attractive for sound doctrine. 
So it's not only is your doctrine sound, but is it fitting? How well does it fit your lifestyle? How does it look on you? Is your doctrine becoming? You know, you might ask the question, okay, how does one wear doctrine? And I would answer that with another question. If we don't wear it, how can we say we believe it? If we don't wear the doctrine that we espouse to, how can we tell the world this is the truth? If it's not conspicuous on us, how can it attract? Is our doctrine conspicuously attractive? Now, you know, Paul is writing to Titus. Back back in verse 4 of chapter 1, he wrote to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. And if there's anything that we have in common, it should be our attire. And what I mean by that is very simply, we wear our worship. Like our hearts on our sleeves. Wear your worship. Don't be afraid to be, you know, obvious in your worship. That you love God because He's the one we're worshiping. We wear our worship. We are robed in garments of salvation by His grace. And so as with worship and as with salvation, we are to be commonly fitted, decked out in sound doctrine. And that's what this whole section is about tonight. Chapters 2 and 3, some of the most practical in all of the New Testament. It's wonderful teaching here. The letter of Paul to Titus, you know, reached him on the Isle of Crete where the young pastor and the older apostle had together planted a number of fellowships. Well, now in Titus chapter 2, Paul is going to build on a framework. Framework of another letter, actually. The framework of the first pastoral epistle where he had written to Timothy... He said in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and to the younger women as sisters in all purity. So he points out to Timothy, this is how to relate. To older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. That's the framework. But he uses that same framework, and in this letter... Rather than instructing Titus on how he ought to pastor people, Paul begins to tell him how they should interact with each other. He's saying, Titus, tell the fellowship, tell the church, the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, tell them how to interact one with another. How they are to be in their relationships. And what ends up happening here, as you go through chapters 2 and 3, is we start to realize that the gospel is becoming. So we could call this the gospel becoming. We could also call it the becoming gospel. It's what we wear when we're together, when we're in this world. Sound doctrine, as Paul uses the phrase, and that phrase soundness, that word soundness, meaning whole or healthy, as we've talked about, Paul uses it a lot, especially in the pastoral letters. Sound doctrine ought to do at least two things. It ought to be attractive to our spirits and it ought to impact our behavior. Attract our spirits and impact our behavior. Affect us inwardly as we hear it, as we receive it, as we ascribe to it. But then affect us outwardly in a way that is quite literally becoming. Such that people look at you and say, what are you wearing? What is this on you? How come you're so different? Because the truth is, when Christians are no different than the world in which we live, what's the point? The non-believer can rightly say, what is the point? If they don't see our teaching, our doctrine, if they don't see it on us, why should they listen to us? And so Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So the question is, what will we be wearing? Keep that in mind as we go through this tonight. Verse 2, Paul tells Titus to tell the older men. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older men, it's presbytes. It's where the word presbyteros comes from, the word for elder. 
This can also be translated elder or ambassador, but we, we know it's, it's for older people in the fellowship. How much older? Well, we can only guess what Paul meant, but we know that Philo used the word presbytes for any man who was 60 or older. So that was Philo's category, and he used the same for older women, anyone 60 or older. So we can kind of fall in that category and say, if you're, if you're 60 plus, this probably applies. If you're 59, but you're feeling older, okay, we'll allow it. All right. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sens- sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Not ornery, cranky, and cantankerous. It's interesting, he doesn't say, give the grumpy old curmudgeon a pass. That is the expectation of our culture, is it not? The grumpy old man? And we give the grumpy old man a pass because after all, he's older. He deserves it. He's done the hard work. He has worked hard for his position in life. Therefore, he should be allowed to be grumpy. And there's a real temptation there. (laughs) Cheryl and I have to remind each other. I think she more than me has to remind me more than I have to remind her. Let me clarify that. Have to remind each other not to grumble. How many of you have done that? Where you're walking out of the room and you've just had a conversation with your spouse that did not go well, and you go, grumble, grumble, murmur, murmur. You're not saying anything because you know as a good Christian, you know you shouldn't be. And yet, or your child walks out of the room after having just dropped a bombshell on you. There's just something satisfying about a good grumble. But understand that it is the grumble of the flesh. It's what the flesh wants. It's how the flesh gets satisfied. It is not satisfying to the Spirit. And it is not becoming. Not for a saint. In the church, it should be a completely different thing. In fact, to the older man who says, I ain't going to change now. I am who I am. Paul would tell Titus, gently remind him there is only one I am and you're not him. One I am. And we are being sanctified to become more and more like Him. There's really no room in the Gospel for the grumpy old man, but the joyful elder statesman. That's a better way to think of it and look at it. And and did you catch the three cardinal Christian virtues here? Not only are they to be temperate, dignified, and sensible, but sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Now, if that had been hope, it would have been perfect. Well, it is. Perseverance is that word hupomone. It means perseverance, steadfastness. But what it literally translates as is enduring hope. Faith, love, and enduring hope. It's that Christian triad, that early first century triad, actually probably preceded Paul. As as three character traits, uh, three virtues... For every follower of Jesus, the faith, the hope, and the love, but it's an enduring hope. It's different than in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which reads, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is the same here, pistis, and love, agape. Perseverance is hupomone, there it's, it's the word elpis, which just means hope. Why does Paul change it here? Why is it different here? Because here toward the end of his life, I believe Paul is recognizing it's not just plain old hope, it's a hope that endures. And you know it's perfect. It's perfect for an older man. Because it's a reminder that you live a faith, a hope, and a love that are enduring. They didn't end back in the 50s or in the 40s. They continue on till the last step, till the last breath of life, that enduring hope that continues and goes. This triad of faith, hope, and love, it's not just theology, it is ethical. And as we age in the Lord, but also in the flesh, we are called to become more like Him, becoming like Jesus. Titus, tell the older men this. And older women, verse 3, Likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. And that's a real literal translation, not slaves of wine. Teaching what is good, 
so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. There is only one reason why I would ever teach about the ethics of being an older woman or a younger woman. And that's if the Bible does so. Otherwise, I would not risk it, ladies. I wouldn't take the chance. I don't know. I don't understand what it's like to be a woman in this world. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It scares me. But the Bible speaks directly to our older sisters and to our younger sisters. And understand this, our culture, when it comes to these things and what, what Paul just described and literally tells Pastor Titus, I want you to share this with the older women. Tell them so they can tell the younger women, this is the pattern. What is that pattern? Listen to it again. It's so specific. That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, and subject to their own husbands. I'll tell you what, our culture has not only drifted from this, we have driven hard away from it. And that is the whole concept of the wife and mother at home. That principle in our culture is shamed. And it is a shame because that's God's principle. It's not mine. I didn't make it up. It's not some old patriarchal principle that I'm clinging to, along with, you know, our guns. (laughs) This is God's Word. This is God's standard. It is not an ancient imposition. This is godly design. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Solomon describes this mentality in an amazing, multitasking, heartbeat of the home woman. It's in Proverbs 31, and I'll read it to you if you'd like to hear it. Proverbs 31 verse 10 says, An excellent wife, who can find? Oh, there's more. Um, For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. Guys, there's a hint for you. The more you trust your wives, the more it will benefit you. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He'll have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. And from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also. And he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. How do you ladies feel about that one? I get halfway down the list and i got to go take a nap. I'm exhausted just reading about it. I like the idea that the husband's known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Yeah, she's doing all the work while he's just sitting around shooting the bull with the boys. But you go through this and you read it and you say, wow, that, that's a tall order. No wonder he began it with, you know, an excellent wife who could find. Well, if this is the description, Really? And yet, this woman, this amazing woman, bears no shame at the idea of being a homemaker. And to the Lord, this is beautiful, it's desirable, it is becoming for His daughters. 
First Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, please understand this. Working moms, we are not denigrating mothers in the marketplace. In fact, if you were paying close attention, the Proverbs 31 woman works with her hands in delight, verse 13 tells us. Verse 16 tells us that she considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. Verse 24 says she makes linen garments and sells them. So she's got a business on the side and she supplies belts to the tradesmen. But you know what makes her a a remarkable godly woman? It's none of that. It's verse 30, which reads, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's the excellent wife. But back in Titus, Paul boldly tells him, Young Pastor Titus, you need to go and tell the older... Call a meeting. Can't even imagine doing this. Call a meeting with the older women. And get them together and tell them this, what I'm telling you, this is their their job. Understand this. All these things are not a statement for the younger women. They're a statement for what the older women are to teach the younger women. Therefore, what the older women are called to do, to be teachers of what a godly woman looks like and how a godly woman is supposed to live. Dear older sisters, don't underestimate your value to your little sisters. One way or another, they're watching, but why not take advantage of the relationship? It is, according to this word, your God-given responsibility to teach these things to your younger sisters, the younger women. Why? Two reasons. Number one, that you all may be becoming as daughters of God. And number two, an even greater reason at the end of verse 5, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Are we guilty? Older men, older women... Younger men, younger women, are we guilty by not ascribing to these things of dishonoring the Word of God? See, here's what's happened. The Bible says these things. And we live in a culture now where in many churches, these things are are kind of set aside. If not, uh, you know, assumed away. Well, that's not really... Well, you know, it's cultural. That's different than now. and, And all of a sudden... The church is making excuses for the Word of God and that dishonors the sound doctrine of the Bible. This is His Word. And it does not matter. I've said this before. It does not matter how much culture changes. Culture always changes. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. The Word of the Lord doesn't change. So we can bend to culture and excuse away the truth of Scripture or we can honor the Scripture by standing for it. And not dishonoring it. And this teaching, older to younger, it's about accepting and maintaining and honoring the standard that God set forth in His Word. And He knows what's becoming. He knows what looks best on us. In verse 6 he says, likewise. Now, because Paul uses the word likewise here, in essence... Everything that is said to older men, older women, younger women, and young men, everything that is said works for everybody else. Okay, do you understand? All the character traits, all the things that are called out, that are, that are beautiful on us, or that are becoming on us, it's for everybody. You can apply any of these things on any of these lists. Likewise, urge the young men. So, in essence, Paul's saying, older men, you have a responsibility to the younger men. Just like the older women have a responsibility to disciple, and that's what we're talking about, to disciple the younger women, older men disciple the younger men. That's discipleship. By the way, opinion. Discipleship should never happen from a man to a woman unless they're married. Discipleship should always be a man to a man, preferably an older man to a younger man. 
or a woman to a woman, preferably an older woman to a younger woman, or at least uh, people together on the same playing field, discipling one another in the Lord, but men with men and women with women, so that the discipleship won't be tainted by anything other than teaching the true and pure Word of God. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Now, I know many of your translations have verse 7 starting in all things, trying to throw it forward to the next verse. But if you read it in the Greek, it is far more likely it goes backward to sensible. So again, read that way. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. If there is anything... Young men need today, this is it. To be sensible. Now if you happen to fall into the young man category, and I'll tell you what that is in just a moment, think about this, sensible, sophroneo is the word, it means self-controlled. It means sober-minded. Young men, I'm looking right at Mike Dieter here, because you fit. So we're just going to talk to Mike, really put you on the spot. Young men, do you want to be taken seriously? Get serious about your faith. Be sensible. Don't be driven by passion and emotion, which is so often the way we do as younger men. And most of us older guys would say, yeah, (laughs) I remember that. And it makes absolute sense that Paul would say to the young man, look, be sober. Be self Controlled. Control yourself. Control your desires. Control your inclinations to react. Yes, control your lust. Young men and young women, by the way, are the masculine and feminine adjectives of the same verb that Paul uses to describe Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. It's the same word. Youthfulness there are the adjectives for young man and young woman here. And it means people who are in their 18 to 30s. 40 would be max, but it can extend to about age 40. But it's those of military age, 18 to 30. So if you're in that category, you are a young man or a young woman. Young men, he continues saying, after saying, be sensible in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Hey, someone bagging on your character? Prove them wrong. How do you prove them wrong? Argue with them? No. Outlast their opposition. Someone makes a comment about you and it's unfair and it's not right? Outlast it. Prove them wrong by living otherwise, by living by that sound doctrine. Because sound doctrine is becoming. And the more we live this way, the more becoming we are. Wear it. Outlast the assumption that you're just like all other young men who can't control themselves anyway. Outlast that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Young men, young men, do this. It's interesting, he says, show yourself, there in verse 7. He starts out saying young men. Young men is plural. That's to everyone. But then he says show yourself. And it's singular, which means it's for Titus. So Titus is included in young men. And this is why we think that Titus was like Timothy, a young man. That he probably was close to the same age as Timothy. Probably a bit older, but still a young man. Because Paul refers to him directly. Show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds. Just like all of the young men that he is addressing. And then he says in verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, which is to be contrary, not pilfering, which is literally to scrape a little off the top, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So even the slaves were called upon to be dressed in sound doctrine. 
So they'll adore the doctrine of God our Savior. God our Savior. Who is God our Savior? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one Savior. There is only one Lord. And that is our Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.24 tells us it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I mention that because there's another young man approximately the same age of Titus and of Timothy. A young man named Jesus who showed us how to adorn ourselves with teaching that's becoming. Isn't there just something attractive about Jesus? Don't you find when you read the Gospels, there's just something about Him. Even the world will say, I don't like Christians, but I like Jesus. That's because Christians aren't adorning themselves in sound doctrine. If we would live like Jesus, look like Jesus, act and speak like Jesus, I think the world would go, I kind of like those Christians. But Jesus, Jesus shows us how it's done. Older, younger, men, women alike, we are becoming like Jesus. We are being sanctified to look like, act like, think like, and be like Him. That is the becoming Gospel. So it's really not what's in your wallet. It's what's in your closet. And are you wearing it? I cleaned out my closet recently. That happens from time to time. I start to realize I have no more room. Because I keep putting new stuff in there. And there's stuff in there that I had 20 years ago. But man, it was so comfortable then. And it may come back, Daniel. It may come back. You never know when it's going to come back around in style. Man, what's in your closet? What are you wearing right now? Are you wearing the sound doctrine of the Word of God? For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. There's that word again. So it's not just young men, it's all of us. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's so rich. This is the becoming gospel. Both the attractive gospel, but it's also what we are becoming in Christ Jesus. And it's one of the two rich theological passages in this little letter. And I told you we're going to talk about it Sunday, so we're going to continue on from here and come back to it. Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Same thing he said to Timothy. Let no one disregard you in your youthfulness. Now he says it to Titus, but I want you to catch one thing that he said. All of this, in this short section, for all of the saints on the Isle of Crete, Titus is supposed to bring this stuff, but he's not just supposed to share it with them, he is supposed to do so with all authority. With all authority. I think about this actually more often than you might think. Who am I to say some of what I say from behind this Bible? I can't tell you how many times on a Saturday night I'm lying wide awake knowing what I have to talk about the next morning and thinking, what right do I have to talk about the Proverbs 31 woman? What right do I have to share these things to a young man? I haven't been a young man for 20 years. What right do I have to talk to the older men about this? I haven't been there yet. What right do I have to share this or that or the other? These people who have gone through this and I haven't experienced this. How do I have the right to do this? I have no authority in and of myself. But you know what? This is not my word. It's God's word. And I have found over the years that the authority to teach without shame, unabashedly and boldly comes from the realization this is God's word. This is what He says. It's what He laid down. This is His truth and not mine. I'm not sitting up here giving opinion. When I first realized it, and it was many years ago, when I realized I had the word of His authority, I started to teach that way. 
And I got in trouble for it. I remember co-pastors coming to me and saying, you know, you really ought to back it down a little bit. You know, soften it. Don't teach as if you think you have all the answers. And I'm like, but I'm teaching the Bible. Don't we think it has all the answers? And if we believe that this book is authoritative, guess what? Brothers and sisters, when you share this word, you can share it with authority. Because it comes from the living God. This is His word. And in my opinion, and I'm gonna, this is an opinion, the pastor who teaches like some mealy-mouthed Oscar milk toast, I have no use for that. When Jesus came along, He was completely different than the scribes. Do you remember this? Matthew 7.28, when Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Now you might say, well granted, Jesus is the Word. So of course He's going to teach His Word with His authority. But understand the difference between Jesus and the scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees followed the teachings of different rabbis. And they always began what they said with, well, Rabbi Hillel says, or Rabbi Shammai, he says, and they never stood on their own two feet. Jesus came along, and remember what he did? He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, I say to you. Now, I don't sit up here with that bold authority. I don't say I say to you, but I say, Jesus says to you and to me, God says to us, that's the kind of authority we're talking about. Define authority to teach His Word. And by the way, with that authority comes a deeply serious charge. So here's the other side of the same coin. We are, I believe, to be people with the authoritative Word of God, not afraid to say, this is what it says. Therefore, this is what I must do. However... The other side of that coin is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. For I've seen the opposite. I've seen people try to be authoritative with a dogma as opposed to the sound doctrine of the word. I've heard people stand up and say, this is the way it is because this verse says so. And then you go to the verse and it's completely out of context. Because that person is trying to act like they have authority without teaching from the truth of the Word. Trying to use Scripture to proof text whatever it is they're saying. And James said very seriously in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So there's a balance here. We have the Word of authority. Teach that with authority. And I believe we all should be teachers of the Word of God with that authority. However, we can get into trouble if we inaccurately pull things out of context to support an agenda. Don't do that. Teach with authority, but teach what is here and let the Spirit work it out in people's hearts and in their ears. Chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. Now, this is why I think Paul had to say, teach with authority. Because what he's about to tell Titus was going to be hard to swallow by some. You see, Nero was on the throne. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. This isn't just sentimental patriotism. This isn't, yes, you need to obey the the laws of the land. This is real life. And it was especially real life in Crete and in all the Christian churches throughout the provinces of Rome because within months, as of 64 AD, the persecutions of Christians by Nero began. The brutal persecution and murder of Christians. Some of you, if you've been here a while, we've talked about this. How Nero used to dip Christians in hot wax. Hang them up on poles and light them on fire in his gardens. That's where it began. And this would rage on for wave after wave of persecution against Christianity for 248 years. Non-stop raging. Non-stop persecution coming straight out of Rome until... Constantine rose to power and realized the value of the Christian right 
the moral majority, if I get them on my side, I can take power. And he did, and in 312 A.D. he signed the Edict of Toleration and the church climbed in bed with Rome. And the persecution stopped. But that's when the problems began, I believe, for the church. That's when the church lost its authority. The becoming gospel is not delivered in defiance to governing authority, but if any government requirements go against God's authority, we simply quietly refuse to obey. We don't march. We don't picket. We don't turn to violence. I shared this with staff earlier today as well. Do you know when when violence began to come out of the church? The church became weaponized after 312 A.D. Do you know how the church fought back against persecution and violence in the first 284 or 48 years? We took beatings. We took brutality. We took imprisonment. We took stonings. We took martyrdom. That's how we responded. Why? That's how the founder responded. That's what Jesus did. Jesus stood up against the powers of Rome and spread His arms and allowed Roman nails to go through His hands into a Roman cross. And He had all authority. And so we as followers of Jesus, I believe, are to do the same thing. In every way we can, we live as model citizens of Christ's kingdom and of Jesus for the sake of the Gospel. And you know what happens? Beatings, stonings, brutality, martyrdom. These are attractive tools. Because you see, while the church was losing people right and left to martyrdom, it was gaining ground radically across those first 300 or so years of the church. Remarkable worldwide global growth of the church, even as upwards of seven, some even estimate as many as 10 million Christians were martyred across those 300 years. It's just outrageous. And yet, the church continued to grow in size and scope and impact. As men like Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is seed. That's what attracts the world. Not power, not might. It's it's Jesus. And that's the attractiveness of the Gospel message. We are to malign no one, verse 2, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration, every consideration. Note that he says, for all men, all anthropos, all people. Why? Well, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending on our our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What's Paul saying here? Remember where you came from. Or remember at least where you would be right now without Jesus. Who would you be without Jesus? Boy, I think sometimes Jesus, he, He takes the edge off of me. He softens the sharp corners in my life. If I didn't have Him for that, I can't even imagine the kind of person I would be. And Paul goes further saying, remember where you have come from. Remember what you did. The attractive good news is offered with kindness and consideration for all people because that's who we have been. We were every man. We were all people. We have done the very things. It's funny, and I've shared this, that oftentimes when someone becomes a Christian, especially when they have a radical, what we would call a radical saving, you know, they, they leave a life of just complete, utter depravity, turn to Jesus and become a pastor. Which happens all the time. <laughs> What's interesting is oftentimes when the life has been so bad, the person pretty quickly becomes judgmental against anyone else still in that lifestyle. Paul would say, don't do that. Remember that was you. What would that do? Well, it develops compassion in us to love and to speak and respond kindly, as he says, showing every consideration for all men. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Romans 2.4 Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's not the argument won. It's not the force applied. No, it is the kindness of God. And we're called to the same kind of kindness, showing consideration for all men. Remember that when you think about non-believers. When you consider those who are right now opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get angry. Don't argue against. Don't fight back. Just show them consideration. Show the kindness, the same kindness that was shown you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is the second big theological passage, and we're going to look at both of those on Sunday morning. But I want you to notice the second use here by Paul of the hope of eternal life. I share with you on Sunday the hope of eternal life. That is the substance. That's the main focus of this little letter. The hope of eternal life. Is there anything of greater value? Is there anything of greater significance in anyone's life than the hope of eternal life? Now you might say, well, what about faith? And I would say, what good is faith that doesn't lead you home? You might say, well, well hope itself? Why endure unless you're headed for Jesus? Love? What about love? Hey, all you need is love. Right? Right? John Lennon sang that. And 11 years later, he was shot to death on the streets of New York by an adoring fan. All you need is love. I remind you what our friend Brother Johan once said, God is love. Love is not God. God is love. Love is not God. It is, brothers and sisters, the hope of eternal life that encompasses our faith, it strengthens our endurance, and it forms our love from Him. It is the most significant thing in our lives, the hope of eternal life. And once we have this hope, it changes everything. It's it's why I say salvation is becoming. What we wear, the robes of righteousness are becoming. Worship is becoming because we praise the Lord who has given us now the hope of eternal life. And of course, sound doctrine is becoming because that's where we get the hope. The hope of eternal life. More on this on Sunday. But once we have that hope, it is ours just to give away. Just give it away. Do you know Jesus? Do you have hope for eternal life? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? To talk about that with with boldness and joy... We have something to offer here that is real and eternal. Give it away. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, he says. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. It's that same authority. Speak confidently. Speak boldly. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. They're good and profitable for men. They're not just good and profitable for those doing the good deeds, but for those who receive the good deeds that are being done. This is good. This is the reason we do what good we can. The reason we speak confidently. The reason why we act with kindness and consideration. That people who don't have the hope of eternal life might come to know it as well. Let me ask you this question. I'm asking Christians this. Can you speak confidently about the hope of eternal life? Ask yourself the question, am I confident in the hope of eternal life? If we are, then it should be a beautiful garment upon us. If we are confident that we're going home, we're going to be with Jesus, this is the great reality. The hope of eternal life is mine. If I own that... How does that affect what I wear, how I look, what I say? 
if we are confident, man, speak it. Can you speak confidently of the hope of eternal life? 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 says the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. 1 John 5.20 And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John says this over and over in his letters, in his Gospel. Remember what he says at the end of the Gospel of John? Chapter, chapter 20 at the end of the chapter, verse 30 and 31. He says, These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you will have life eternal. Do you have that hope? Are you sure of it? Are you confident? Well, again, more on Sunday. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Sound familiar? Pastor Tim got a mouthful of the same message in 1 Timothy. We read that, we saw it. And in fact, I believe I pointed out then that five times in the pastoral epistles, Paul returns to the same theme. And that is that contentious debates and arguments are not worth your time. They're not worth the time of day. Don't get sucked into them. Debates one in the moment... While lives are lost for eternity, it's not worth the fight. Foolish controversies. Genealogies. There were people who were... Some some translations even say angelic genealogies because there were some of the Gnostic heresy that would come along much stronger later on that tried to prove through genealogical line that they actually traced back to the angels. There's a lot of weird talk. There's a lot of interesting, confusing curiosities out there. And Paul, I believe, would lump them all together. Do they get us to heaven? Do they bring us home? Do they go beyond this Word? Because this Word will get you home. This Word will show you Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. Outside of this, foolish controversies. Legal disputes, strife. One commentator said that's as close as Paul gets to actually defining the external heresies that were going on on the island of Crete. We don't know exactly what the heresies were. Paul just says avoid them. He says, this commentator says, they come tantalizingly near disclosing the content of the heresy, but we don't know what it is. The bottom line is, foolish controversies, genealogy, strife, and disputes about the law are ugly outfits. Don't wear them. They are not becoming. And they are certainly not becoming of the saint of God. Verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Strong words. The word factious, you might want to note this in your Bibles, is hereticos. Heretic. Reject the heretic, he says. This word uh, hereticos, factious or heretic, is also translated schismatic, divisive, contentious. This is the person who is stirring up strife. And Paul says, listen, don't argue the same case over and over. In fact, it's so serious, he says, don't dialogue with those who divide. All it's going to do is draw you into another ugly adornment. Don't go there. Don't argue it out. Don't even put up with it. After a first warning and a second warning, they're gone. Do you take that literally, Rick? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. In the fellowship of believers, when someone is divisive and factious, they get a warning. If they continue to divide, a second warning... If they continue to divide, that's it. That's where I believe disfellowship happens. People ask sometimes, what would, what would cause you to disfellowship someone from the bridge? Division? Factiousness? Well, not... What about sexual immorality? What have you... I would be much quicker to tell someone they cannot be here over divisiveness 
than any other issue. See, the Bible says in Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to Him. Those of you who know how the Hebrew poetry works, that means number seven is the worst. And he goes on and says, listing them out, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness. Those are the six. And then number seven, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God doesn't just hate that, He despises it. That is the one that above all other things, God stands opposed to. Division. And Paul says, Give a warning. Give a second. And then they're gone. And by the way, in my opinion, even a first and second warning are only by grace. Well, in verse 12, Paul now is going to wrap the letter up. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Now, a quick pause here on all these people he names. Zenos and Apollos are probably the couriers of this letter, which is why he says help them along their way, because they're going to come now to Crete and help Titus. They're going to bring the letter of Paul, and, and he's to help them along. Zenos is a lawyer... That's mentioned, Zenus the lawyer, which is helpful if you're in jail a lot. Perhaps that's how Paul met him. Zenus the lawyer. Then there's Apollos, who the Bible tells us was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures. You may remember reading about him, Acts 18 and 19, how he comes to Ephesus and how Priscilla and Aquila have to kind of correct him because he's a mighty teacher of the Word, but he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't know about the baptism into Jesus. And so with that little correction, then he becomes a powerhouse in the early church. Goes on down to Corinth. He's teaching the Word all over the place. Well, he's still connected here with Paul. And Paul sends the two of these men over to Crete to bring this letter to Titus. Then you've got Artemis, which is an interesting name. We know nothing about Artemis. But I can tell you the name is the Greek name for the goddess Diana. Interesting. Zenos, Apollos, Artemis, Tychicus, you may recall, traveled with Paul. At the end of the third missionary journey, he traveled with Paul back to Jerusalem carrying that sum of money that had been collected by all the churches. And then he worked with Paul. In fact, during Paul's detention, he was the courier to Colossae and he was the envoy to Ephesus. You know, he covered ground for Paul when Paul was in prison and carried letters. Tychicus. And so these are the four that are mentioned here. And Paul, of course, invites Titus to join him at a place called Nicopolis. This all is significant. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Come meet me down at Nicopolis. I'm going to winter there, Paul says. I want you to come and meet me. And actually, it wouldn't be down at. It would be up from Crete, because Crete is the southernmost isle. Nicopolis is actually a narrow strip on western Greece between the Ionian Sea and a large gulf there called the Abrasian or Ambracian Gulf. And that little place there, it's still a beautiful spot today. And Paul was going to, was hoping to spend the winter there, again at 63 AD, hoping to get there. But do you see what's going on here? Let me read it to you again. Let me give you a hint. Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus, Apollos. Come to me at Nicopolis, Paul says. Paul's ministry here in 63 AD is now completely European. We don't hear of Paul ever heading east again. He has now gone on with the Gospel. He has continued forward. More than European, it is completely Gentile. Every single one of his co-workers here in this letter are Gentiles. Greek names. One named after a Greek goddess for crying out loud. And Paul says, these are my men. These are my guys. Fully Gentile. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You know what I would say? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Paul landed the plane. At the right time, 
And in his final letter, the last of the pastoral epistles, he can rightly say, 2 Timothy 4.7, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I have kept the faith. He did what he was called to do. And to you and to me, how, how, did, how did he do it? How can we, like Paul, fulfill the calling on our lives, do what we've been called to do, so that we can end our lives saying, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. For the apostle of the Gentiles, it was to get the gospel to the Gentiles, and he did. How did he do it? He was clothed with the becoming sound doctrine of our faith. Clothed with the becoming gospel. And in verse 14, he says this, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. That's a really interesting phrase. Good deeds to meet pressing needs. But he doesn't end there. So that they will not be unfruitful. There are a lot of pressing needs that are unfruitful. There are a lot of good deeds that we can do, but they're not going to produce fruit. In fact, there's a lot of good you can do in the name of pressing needs. You can spend your life racing around putting out fires. Oh, there's a need here. There's a need there. Got to take care of that need. Got to get that need. Oh, the phone's ringing again. Got to go. Got to help. Got to serve. Good deeds. Pressing needs. But is it fruitful? The question is what determines how pressing the need is. Les knows the answer to this because he says it all the time. It's not what. It's who. Les likes to say, and I'm going to quote him on this. I actually have you in my notes. Les, and I've got little quotes around what you say. The need doesn't dictate the task. The Spirit dictates the task. If we were a need-driven people, I'll tell you what, if I was a need-driven pastor, I would not still be in ministry. I long ago would have burned out trying to put out fires. I don't function that way. Sometimes that's frustrating to people. I understand that. But I don't rush out of my office the moment that I hear of a need. I wait. I ask, Lord, am I supposed to go? Often I'll hear, a bunch of people have already gone. Okay. Ministry has taken place. It doesn't have to be me. And then I can continue doing what I was called to do. The Spirit dictates the task, not the need. And Jesus reveals this so beautifully. He says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the deal. Get this. What Jesus says And it parallels what Paul says here. He reveals how we can be fruitful. That is, bring in a good harvest at the end of the day rather than just putting out all these little fires. And here's how it works. The becoming attire of the Gospel is not pressed by the needs. We're not rushed. We're not anxious. We're not alarmists. We are led by the Spirit of Christ. And when we are led by the Spirit of Christ, you know what comes of it? Good fruit. Produce. A harvest. When I am just knee-jerk reacting to everything going on, you know what happens? I end up wrinkled and ruffled. If I go it alone, if I panic, the pressures of life will simply wrinkle my attire. But to be attired in the becoming gospel is to abide in Jesus who meets every need and when Jesus meets the need, He bears fruit. I have found this to be the case in my life. There are needs that I respond to quickly because I feel pressure to or guilt tripped into it and I do it and nothing comes of it. And there is no fruit from it. Immediate satisfaction but nothing long term. We want to be about the long term of the gospel. Bearing fruit And that only works when Jesus is the one leading us. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Abide in Him, even as He abides in you. And in verse 15, Paul says, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Who's that? Children of the common faith. Children who are pressed and dressed in worship. 
for salvation and by the sound teaching of the Word of God, grace be with you all. Father, you have given us the hope of eternal life. And I I just want to pray, Lord, that for all the different aspects of this walk and our faith, uh, of how we live and how we are attired as followers of Jesus, would you, Lord, tonight just keep one thing, one thing in our minds. If we forget the entire teaching, may we remember one thing, and that is we have the hope of eternal life. Lord, that I, I can't say that without a smile busting out of my face. That we have the hope of eternal life. We will be with you. We are going to see you just as you are. We're going to worship you. And man, we're going to look good, Lord. And we're going to be dressed in our robes of righteousness, saved by you. And it's going to be marvelous. And we will have worn now this, this doctrine, this gospel, this truth. Father, I just pray that that hope would be what spurs us on, that enduring hope of our eternity with You. Absolute, guaranteed promise. We are going home. And may that be the glorious motivator for all of these life choices and for all of this morality, for all the decisions before us. And even as we read Your Word, for the very decision, Father, we make, to accept Your Word as is and to not change it, but to live as You told us to live. Lord, may it be the hope of eternal life that bears us through, lifts us up, gives us perseverance to endure all things. For we know we're going to see You and we say with the Apostle, we say, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be encouraged in His Word. Wear it. Wear it well. It looks good on you. God bless you all.